and the moon and the planets are there and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there and therefore as we set sail on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked we are in space we are in space hosted by matthew altruda today's episode is welcome to the jungle let's talk everyone's favorite subject music in the music industry today's episode is going to cover well it's going to be a crash course in the industry let's just say that did hunter s thompson say it best the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench of long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. We have species have been creating music for 6 million years, which makes me think tens of thousands of years ago, our species' most fulfilling moments were probably around the fire with their family, playing music, escaping from everyday life. Now, there is a few rules in the music industry. The first rule is there's no rules. It's also the second rule. It's also the 21st rule. And this is obvious when an artist only makes about $57 per million plays on Spotify. It's important to understand that once an artist releases a song, it's no longer their song. It's your song as a fan. If that song reminds you of your beautiful wife and empowers your love and just covers you with emotion, that's incredible. But at the same time, that artist might have been writing that song about their cat. My journey has been a long one in the music business. I've been working directly in the music business for about 25 years. I started off with a huge love for music and started working retail in music stores, which led me to be a music store manager for Borders Books and Music, which led me to be a booking agent and a band manager. And today I'm a festival promoter and I also do one-off shows as a promoter, but I learned the old fashioned way like most people do in this industry. Um, one time I remember particularly was in 2007 when I thought it'd be an incredible idea to do a massive Halloween show at the Michigan theater with incredible local bands. It didn't work out. I didn't understand how to do a giant concert as opposed to doing a small one-off. And sadly, with union fees and everything that was built in, I ended up losing like $10,000. And um, it was a charity event for the Women's Center of Southeastern Michigan. And Russ Collins at the Michigan Theater was awesome to me. But at the same time, he was like, you owe $10,000. So welcome to the music industry. And it was a great lesson for me to learn. But I still lost $10,000. And luckily, since the Michigan Theater is so great and really invested in the community, they let me pay off $250 a month. But it took years. Saying the music industry is an industry is like saying the Amazon jungle is a botanical garden. Trying to understand the music industry is also very similar to trying to understand a foreign ecosystem. The, music's, the music industry really isn't an industry. It is more of a jungle with countless moving parts to support an ecosystem. And most of these moving parts have the same function with overlapping features. Using this analogy, the old music industry is still a jungle, but it has a trail through the middle. And if you make it all the way to the other side, you've found success. However, this trail is more of a labyrinth. Oh, and you're traveling at night. And the trail also has deadly predators if you try to blaze your own trail. The only way you could possibly make it is have a guide. And that guide was the record label. 
So this basically means that you had to be discovered and then you had to be signed. Then the record label would get you on TV, radio, distribution. If the record label thought your music was great, but you didn't have the right look, then maybe you were passed on regardless of your talent. Remember, your music is a commodity. It's just the way it is. Maybe you had the right look, but you didn't have the songs. So they set up ghostwriters to fill their need. And this is where we find artists like Elvis and Whitney Houston and Frank Sinatra and Rihanna and even Marvin Gaye and some of the times Justin Bieber. To be hearing an artist sing their own songs is really what it's all about for me. Adele's love ballads were written by her. And for some reason, they connect way more with me knowing that they're about her written by her than, say, written by Richard Marks. A great example of this is Love Yourself by Justin Bieber. Sounds like Justin was getting super vulnerable, singing about his past relationships, about how his mom doesn't love his ex-girlfriend, until you find out it was written by Ed Sheeran. This is why I connect with so many bands that write and play all their original music, like Sufjan Stevens and Stevie Wonder and even Fish. Yeah, I said it, Fish. I love Fish. You're going to have to get over that. Taylor Swift is another great example of someone who writes all their own music. And that connects with millions of people. She makes herself so vulnerable. And while we're talking about Taylor Swift, she'd be one of the greatest songwriters ever live. And we'd be talking about her as that if she was a man. Trust me. If she was a man, she'd be the man. Today's music industry landscape is still a jungle. And all the predators are still present. Except the exception of like indie DIY bands finding their way through the jungle without a guide, like Chance the Rapper, or Wolfpack, who is an indie band from Ann Arbor that sold out Madison Square Garden. Everyone loves music, whether they realize it or not. It's everywhere. TV, video games, basically everywhere on the internet. If you want to get a hold of someone's attention and hold it, chances are you're using music. And the music industry absolutely knows that. Music is everywhere. It is an integral part of our species, in our story, in our lives. And we've seen this through the history of time with music being the great messenger with folk music. We all know that leaders through history try to eliminate stories and take over the press. And sometimes these stories have only survived because of song. However, let's still keep in mind, most importantly, that we are in 2020 and music is a commodity meaning it's a product that can be bought or sold much like coffee. If you work at Starbucks, you, can, you can't reap the true financial benefit, beneficial rewards from the coffee. Much like a musician can put themselves into bad business deals where they don't reap the benefits of the sales. Art also is absolutely impossible to assign value to. Also, people think that just because the musicians enjoy playing it so much that it should be free. It's not a job. You're a musician. It's fun. No, it's a job. No one goes to Starbucks to get a free coffee, but everyone wants free music. Musicians have families, and they want to provide for the people they love. Do you like going to work all day and not getting paid? No. If you did, would you quit your job? Yes. Just like many musicians are forced to quit, they have to quit the circus and join the office because it just doesn't add up. No one should ever be asking a musician to play for free. And I don't care if it's a charity event for animals or children. You should be very, very bare minimum. You should be paying them $100 to cover their expenses. 
If you own a nonprofit and you need your plumbing fixed, I highly doubt any plumbing company is coming to your house to fix it for free and musicians should be treated with that same respect. So let's break down why musicians must get paid. They need to have access to an instrument. They need to have upkeep for that instrument. They need to pay for lessons. They need to have lessons. And most importantly, they need to practice for trillions of hours. Have you tried playing before? Seriously difficult. And then they need to rehearse forever. And then they need to write more songs. A concert that you go see at a music venue is a celebration of the thousands of hours musicians put in just to play those songs. So let's go over some music jungle jobs. We're going to call them jungle jobs instead of music industry jobs to help you better understand. As you know, bands have managers. Managers oversee everything. When I mean everything, I literally mean everything. It's the most thankless job in the history of the world. The number one job of a manager is to keep the band together. And that usually means you have to give them livable wages so they don't quit. In many cases, they run socials and interact as the band, but Everything that happens in the band is under their umbrella. They're also a band therapist working through multiple music visions of artistic people to keep high morale. It's very similar to like a sports coach before the big game or the big season. You got to keep people motivated. You have to keep them believing in the team or the band. I like to say a lot of managers' job is to bleed on the art because they have to find a way to make money for it. Band managers also have to keep ethics alive. Meaning, if a promoter in Cleveland, Ohio, gives your band money to play and he makes no money for years and then you blow up huge but go with another promoter when you come back, that's terrible business ethics. You need to reward that promoter for believing you early on by still giving him the shows so he can make money. So ethics is a huge part of this. There's also booking agents, which make roughly 10 to 15% off each show. Generally speaking, if your band's doing about 100 people paid in 20 markets or, or 500 plus in five markets, then booking agents will be interested in you. If you're not doing 100 people in 20 markets and 500 people in five markets, then it's not worth a booking agent's time. So if you're a band trying to find a booking agent and you're not doing those things, Focus on getting people to your shows and not having a booking agent because it's not going to help. Remember, agents only get paid for their confirmed shows. They can work for months on a big show and have it fall through and get absolutely nothing. It, too, is a very thankless job, and it's an extremely competitive job. Think about 20 hungry frat boys and you showing up with only two pizzas. It's pretty much how it is for a major festival with all the agents out there. They also have to deal with routing dates and touring dates. Basically, they're studying maps all the time, figuring out distance from different cities to see if it's a functional tour for a band so they don't die driving on the road. If you go to any booking agent and say, how far is Cleveland from Chicago? They're going to know in the snap of a finger. Once an agent gets an offer from a talent buyer, meaning the person who runs the festival wants your band to play. They send you an offer saying, I'll give you $5,000. The agent brings that offer to the manager and he either he or she either agrees to do the show or they negotiate for more money. When both sides are satisfied with the deal, the manager accepts the offer and the agent submits the contract to the talent buyer. The talent buyer then signs it and the process begins. The talent buyer 
basically would be the person who buys the band for the room or for the festival and works directly with all the booking agents. However, you can imagine managers are also reaching out because they're in charge of everything. So it's important for them, for the band to get good shows too. And they also have great business relationships. So a lot of the times the manager will get the festival spot, agree on a price account and have the account, have the agent do all the paperwork, if you will. The reality is most music venues pay their bills with beer and alcohol sales. So it's also fair to say that a lot of these talent buyers out there are actually beer buyers because they need the alcohol sales to keep their venue alive. This is where like the dread of Live Nation comes in because Live Nation's national buyers, they package deals, they, they buy full tours for bands and put them in all their venues, venues that they own, like the Fillmore's that are everywhere. They own these venues because they want the alcohol sales. Live Nation is a giant beer selling organization. They want that money from the beer. And trust me, venues know that jam bands are going to sell a lot more alcohol than teen bedroom pop. But to take it a step further, Live Nation makes venues they don't physically own the bricks and mortar sign into deals so they can be exclusive Live Nation venues. So this basically means that if you're a venue, you have to sign this deal with Live Nation or you're going to get none of their national tours. The crazy part is it limits the venue from booking their own shows until Live Nation releases the date. So to give you an idea how that works, there's a hold process in place with that booking agents use. And we're going to use the Michigan Theater as an example. A booking agent will reach out and say, well, I have Beck like Beck, they want to come to the Michigan theater. Live Nation will come to you and say, we have Beck. We want to hold the first two weeks in February because they don't know actually what date the Beck show is going to fall on because they're talking to markets all over the country. So you're basically holding those dates for this big show that might not even happen. And when it doesn't happen, you might lose out on all those dates. So the only way you could possibly, as a Live Nation venue, would be to hope they release the date early. That way you could book something else. You could reach out to Live Nation and say, please, 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 we need this date, but you signed a contract. So ultimately it's up to them. But this has seriously crippled historic venues, and especially in secondary markets that are near big cities. Ann Arbor doesn't get the shows it used to get because they're all going to Detroit. So we rarely get the big shows and our theater historically ends up empty. It's sad. And many venues have little or no choice but to sign because that's the climate of the industry right now. So when you see fine little venues like the Blind Pig in Ann Arbor, that's an indie venue. So they have a talent buyer, but constantly with every show is competing against Live Nation in a machine that has tons of money. Also, there's publicists, which really isn't a music industry job anymore. All the great publicists I know seem to have moved into more lucrative industries, one of them being the marijuana industry, because the marijuana industry really needs publicists right now. Labels do have publicists on staff, but it's just about impossible to manage them when you're a band, and you're never really too sure if they're working for you or working for someone else, and it's hard to manage. I've heard the stories of, yes, we signed you. You can talk to our publicists as much as you want, as much as they promised that. It never really seems to pan out as much as it should. There's also promoters. And this is really the wild card in the equation because you can be a promoter. Anyone can be a promoter. You could reach out to a band and say, hey, I'm going to give you $2,000 to play this Saturday night. And you talk to the venue 
you secure the venue, you secure the band, and you have a show. You promote it and you get people to come out. It's a great way to make money. It's even a better way to lose money. So let's say you have 250 people show up and you gross $3,750. Sounds good, right? The venue takes about $300 off the top to cover sound because they need a sound engineer in the venue to make sure your sound engineer doesn't destroy their sound system. And then it's usually a 70-30 split, 70% going to the artist, 30% going to the venue, or maybe 80-20, or it could even be 50-50, could even be worse depending on the market and what day of the week. Remember, there's absolutely no rules in the music industry. So let's say it's a Saturday night, so it's a 70-30 split. $2,625 is the purse now because $300 was taken off the top. $2,000 goes to the band. $100 goes to the opening band. If they're lucky, it could be $50. And if you are this opening band, dude, don't blow it. 25-minute set, tops. Make the audience want more. If you're an opening band, you do not want to play more than that because you want the crowd to want more. And then when you're done playing your set, you need to go on the crowd and hand out flyers so people know who you are. So after paying the opening band, you just made $525 before your expenses. Now, if you are the band, you should probably ask for a piece of the back end of the deal, meaning if it does so well, you get a percentage in case you sell it out, but that's your agent's job. And most importantly, it's your manager's job to make sure your agent's doing their job. But let's say you're the band in this equation. You just made $2,000. Man, that's that's a pretty decent amount of money, $2,000. However, 10% goes to your agent right away. And another 10% goes to your manager. So there goes 400 bucks. If you're in a 360 deal with a record label, which we're gonna cover in a minute, another 10% is gonna go to them. So that's another 200 bucks. Now, you gotta remember, if you're a band, production is king. If you don't sound good, it doesn't matter how good your songs are. So you have to have a sound guy who can hold down your house, that's about $200 for that show too because you need to get them paid. Production is king. And let's say you need lights. Man, of course you need lights because production is king. People want to go out and dance and have fun. If you have lights, the show experience is so much better. So there's another $200. So basically, now let's just say you made $1,000 on the show, but you got to find a place to sleep. Oh, and you need gas. And you're probably hungry. But don't get me wrong, good agents and good managers will get hospitality in the deals, maybe get hotels. If, if the band's good, it, if they warrant it, that can be done. But who's selling your merch? And who's driving your van? That could be another $100. And your posters and your art and coffee. I mean, we're talking maybe another $100 there. So now you just made $800. And before I even forget, don't ever ask for a piece of the bar. You're never going to get it unless you're Mick Jagger. It almost just makes you look like a rookie. Venues are never going to give you a piece of the bar, ever. Unless you're Mick Jagger, and then no rules apply. So you can't just split that up. You got $800 as your band now from the show. You can't just split it up because you have car insurance. You have expenses. You have tons of unforeseen stuff. So half of that goes to the band, and the other half is going to be paying out the musician. So now you made $400 for five people to live on. Each member just got 80 bucks, which for a band that just had a really successful show with 250 people, getting 80 bucks kind of sucks. You just practice thousands of hours to not make anything. Those five members in the band could have all got jobs at Starbucks, taken all their tips, pooled them all together, split them out five ways at the end of the week, and they would certainly be making more money. 
So how do they stay engaged? Why would they continue to do this? However, you could have sold $800 in merch, which the venue typically takes about 10% of all of your music, meaning like CDs, vinyls, anything that has music on it, the venue takes 10% of your sales, then takes another 20% of cloth, meaning like t-shirts, headbands, anything that's not music, they're taking 20%. And really, this is where the model has to be for bands to make money. As a touring band with some success, the magic number, in my opinion, is about $5,000. If you're doing five grand a night in merch, you really have a fantastic business that's set to grow. But to do 5,000 in merch, you probably need like 1,500 to 2,500 people. Granted, some artists sell tons of merch more than others, but people aren't buying music anymore, so the sales really aren't there like they used to be. So if you're a fan listening to this right now, the number one way you could ever support your band is to buy merch. I mean, for all I just said, this is probably why so many bands love house shows because they don't have to deal with all the BS I just laid out. So how do musicians define success in a model that really doesn't work unless you hit it big? Why are concerts so expensive? Well, people used to think concerts should be free and concerts were pretty much free. You see old ticket stubs are like $5 and $3. Well, that's because an artist released their new music. It made millions of dollars because people were buying it. Then they played concerts to support their new album and make more money off people buying the album. They didn't need the money with ticket sales, but now they do because no one's buying the music anymore. I mean, and a lot of that is thanks to technology in like the wild, wild west period of piracy in the early 2000s where we saw Napster and everything pop up where people were stealing music and it was everywhere. Now, man, if you want to find free music, it's easy. The question is, when you find your free music, is the artist making something on the back end? You know, and this period has really taken an epic shift for the recording industry. You know, the recording industry really hasn't been able to recover from it. So let's talk record labels. Record labels are only as good as the team that's working your band. You can talk trash about any record label you want and like, oh, these guys, Atlantic sucks and Sony sucks. You can say whatever you want about what any label, you're entitled to it. This is a free country. But really, it's about the people that are working you, not everyone who works for the label. There's tons of incredible people working in the record industry. So it doesn't matter which label you're on. It matters who's working your music. It's pretty cut and dry too. You know, record labels need to make money. And when they don't make money, they're out of business. So they might toss you away like an old piece of fruit, or they might pump up the jam and make you their number one artist. But as a band, your contact is A&R. And that's artists and repertoire, not to be confused with artists and relations. They use the word A&R for these unique individuals. And these are the people that work directly with the band. They are the rock stars of the record industry. They have the most glamorous jobs and get portrayed in movies as glamorous jobs. They're the reps that work closely, most closely involved with the artists with the most creative aspects of the process from signing them to releasing music. However, it's also the NR reps that get blamed and hated on the most because they find themselves in the middle of a conflict between the artistic vision of the musician and actually sales oriented goals of the record label. They are in the middle. And there's a ton of incredible A&R reps out there, but there's many more that aren't good. 
A&R reps are often seen as like the gatekeepers of the music industry because they're the ones helping decide who gets signed, what songs get recorded, and especially what songs get recorded when the artist they're representing doesn't even write their own music. So they're picking the songs that go on the album. They are helping the process of how this artist is being presented to the public. Trust me, when you see a brand new music video of your favorite artist, it is so dialed in to everything they're wearing and everything that they're doing. This is a process. This is a business. This is a commodity. Many artists have been interpreted as rejection from A&R. They're like, oh, they hate our music, da, da, da. But maybe that's not even the case. It's the record, it's the A&R's person to look at the artist, listen to the music, and see if it's a good fit for the record label to make money. It doesn't really always have to do with your talent level or if, if the music's really good. It matters if it fits into their business. For example, if I open a gardening store, I'm not going to start selling toasters. Understand? Good. So the ANR's other role is they need to oversee recording and artist development. This is where it turns into a commodity more than ever. Artists don't want to stay stagnant. They want to make new music. Their fans want to hear new music. Trust me, no artist wants to be playing their old songs to death for the rest of their life. And fans are tired of hearing rehashes of their old favorite songs or acoustic versions and all of that, which record labels love. They want to beat those to death because they see dollar signs with it. So this is where the A&R person tries to mold the band, turn them into what's really selling. Trust me, they're paying attention to the charts. They're paying attention to what's hot. They know what's getting the biggest responses and they want their band to be in that position. Therefore, they can make that money too. This doesn't mean that artists shouldn't listen to their A&R person because they've been in the industry and they have a lot of history. However, this also means they shouldn't, they can be bullheaded too, because this is their art. This is their music. So they can disagree. And this is where epic battles take place between managers and A&R and the band. You could have 10 people not on the same page. A really good example of this is the band Chicago. Chicago was one of the hottest bands that were ever out there. Then they changed because they wanted to stack cheddar. They went from this talented band to like Pita Cetera power ballad yacht rock for Karate Kid. And members of the band had to quit because they were like, no, but that's just the way it works. So I'm going to use a real world example with this, with one of my favorite bands from Ann Arbor, and that's Tally Hall. And you might know Tally Hall, you might not, but by the end of this, you'll have a pretty good understanding of what I'm talking about. Tally Hall went to the University of Michigan. They put out their first demo CD in 2004 and released Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum in 2005, which was extremely well recepted. Some of the biggest concerts I've ever been to in Ann Arbor was Tally Hall, selling out the Blind Pig, doing epic large shows at Ann Arbor Summer Festival. It got the attention of labels. It got the attention of me even and when I was working at Borders. They signed with Atlantic Records on March 29th, 2007. They signed a three-album deal with an option for three more. Basically, what this means is they were expected to have three albums on Atlantic, and then there was an option to do three more if they did well. Atlantic then helped place them. They got about nine shows with Guster that fall. And this is one of the hookups in all this, which drove me crazy. Atlantic re-released Marvelous Marvin's Mechanical Museum with the new single, Good Day, in April of 2008. So we're like, we're talking three years here of the band working the same album, but it was new again. So for us older fans, it was weird. 
and it was truly a mistake in my opinion. I think the first release should have been their next album, but the label was able to get them some TV exposure. They played on um, The Late Show with Craig Ferguson on CBS. They were on MTV, You Can Hear It First. They were on VH1, Best Week Ever. They even got on the OC soundtrack. But their A&R rep, the person who had the passion for them that brought them onto Atlantic, got fired. And this was shortly after they submitted their demos for their next album, Good and Evil. With their A&R person gone, there was no one there to bat for them. No one had the passion. And the band also... And the label wasn't also sure if they wanted to put money into promoting this project because no one understood it. Good and Evil was just recorded at the Sound Factory on Selma Ave in Hollywood, Los Angeles, California, and was completed in early 2010. We are five years now away from their first album. And Atlantic had no idea what to do with it because there's no one with passion. They weren't actually too sure if it was even good. It just laid stagnant for another year. Now, keep in mind, labels are on the hook. The label's on the hook for three albums. And recording and producing an album on this level could cost fifty dollars to $100,000 to have a completed product. So in many cases, the label's thinking about cutting their losses when they don't know what to do. This can present a few scenarios. They can shelve you, meaning they're just going to watch you wilt and die and not put out your album and ruin your whole music career. This happened to Rodriguez, who was a Detroit artist who got shelved and his album made it to South Africa, which blew up and he had hundreds of thousands of fans that he didn't even know about. And there's a great documentary on it, Searching for Sugarman, if you haven't seen it. Atlantic's approach with Tally Hall wasn't good either. You know, their approach was, well, maybe this needs some edits and maybe we should bring in a co-writing session with the guy from The Bravery and see how that goes. Basically, it was a little over a year of them not doing anything. And Tally Hall and their lawyers basically said it's now or never, and they negotiated an exit agreement in 2011, six years after their last album. And they signed with a local record company, Quack, and did a 50-50 deal with them, with Tally Hall owning their masters after five years. Basically, their last show was in August in 2011. And in my opinion, this pretty much destroyed the band. And it's sad because Atlantic was wrong. Because Tally Hall right now has over 1 million monthly listeners on Spotify. They're more popular than the majority of their roster. But the band's not playing anymore. They've all found different careers after the six years of trying to get at their second album to be released. I said masters. And it's important you understand a master is a recording of the official original of the song. Sound or performance it's referred to as a master. It's the source where all later copies are made, and whoever owns the masters reaps the rewards. They own the master rights. We've seen this play out in the media recently with Taylor Swift. She was like 16 years old. She signed a six album deal with Big Machine, and she did not own the masters. She didn't negotiate properly because she was a teen who didn't know. And Big Machine was purchased by Scooter Braun for $300 million. And then he owned her masters, which became a toxic environment for her. Taylor Swift wrote, young artists or kids with musical dreams who read this and learn how to better protect themselves in negotiation. You deserve to own the art you make. And that is an absolute fact. 
Labels often secure an artist's master rights in exchange for promotion and supporting during the recording process. The deals allow the labels to release the artist's music, earn money through distribution and licensing. They customarily arrange deals in which the artist receives royalties once they recoup the advance given amount given to them from the label for the recording process. <clears throat> Pretty confusing. Sounds good to be true if you can understand it. Basically, there are so many hidden expenses when someone's charging you for the work done by them. Let's say you bought a brand new computer at the Apple store. It's $1,500. What a great investment. But you realize after buying it <clears throat> that you don't have a charger. You don't have a case. You don't have any software. You don't have any insurance. And your $1,500 investment, by the time you get everything you actually need, turns out to be like a $3,000 investment. And you didn't realize all the added expenses. It's very typical to how a label treats an artist. Also, the revenue just isn't there today with streaming sites. So record labels are forcing artists to sign 360 deals. Basically, they're making a percentage of everything. Merch, ticket sales, everything. 360, all around, they're taking it all. So if you're a band, I would say, welcome to the jungle. Fasten your seatbelt. Please put down your safety bar. I would suggest doing everything in-house. Work as hard as you can on your music. Own the internet in your channels by engaging fans. Remember, the most powerful thing you can say in the music industry is no. Make it so the record labels have to beat down your doors. That's number one. If you're a fan, well, then I would suggest buying as much merch as possible to support the artists you love. But if you don't have money and you can't support them materially, then retweet them, share their music, do as much as you can on socials. We, means we must support the music industry. We must support the musicians that we love. Therefore, it doesn't become a dying profession. Look at it right now with the coronavirus. Venues are closing all over America. Bands are giving up. We need to do everything we can to support the musicians we love. Welcome to the jungle. You're a part of it now. And that jungle is in space. So let's do everything we can to support the musicians we love. And I hope today's episode helped you better understand the music industry. We are in space. We are in space. We are in space.